Chapter 7, Part 2 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Anna Roberts. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 7, The Organization of the Church, Part 2. When it became usual for the bishops of neighboring churches to meet for deliberation on matters of common interest, it was necessary that some one of their number should have the power both of summoning assemblies and of presiding in them. Thus, although in spiritual powers all bishops were equal, a certain precedence and dignity came to be assigned to the occupants of certain ancient and important sees. It is probable, indeed, that a certain subordination among churches existed from the first— as in every city where Jews were found in large numbers, its Sanhedrin exercised authority over the councils of the smaller synagogues in the neighborhood. So, when the faith of Christ came to be preached, and it was first preached by preference in cities containing Jewish communities, a presbytery with its bishop was formed from the converts, which naturally took the oversight of smaller neighboring communities in much the same way that the Jewish presbytery had done that of its dependents. In some cases, the senior bishop, without reference to his see, presided in councils, but generally the bishop of the chief town of a province, where also the church generally claimed an apostle or apostolic man as its founder, summoned and presided in assemblies, and exercised a vague authority over his comprovincial bishops. The great metropolitan sees were the following. Jerusalem itself, blessed with the presidency of St. James, and afterwards of others of the same family, had a natural preeminence among Jewish Christian churches. But when, after the rebellion in the time of Hadrian, the purely Gentile town of Ilia Capitolina rose up upon the ruins of the sacred city, its prerogative passed to Caesarea, the political capital of Palestine, where the church was at any rate of apostolic origin, and illustrious from the memory of St. Peter and of St. Philip the Evangelist. In Syria and the neighboring countries, the preeminence of Antioch, the first meeting-point of Jewish and Gentile Christianity, was long acknowledged. Alexandria rose into prominence at a somewhat later period. Here was found the most numerous and important Jewish community existing beyond the limits of Palestine, and here, too, was formed in the course of the first two centuries a Christian church so important that its bishop ranked first among the bishops of the East, though it was not of the very highest antiquity, nor founded by an apostle. The authority of this church extended itself, like that of the Sanhedrin in the same place, over the communities in the Cyrenaica and in Libya, though Cyrene and Libya Mariatis belonged politically to the province of Africa and not to Egypt, a proof that the ecclesiastical was not always identical with the political province. Rome had probably a larger Jewish population than any other city of the West, and here too a Christian church was formed, if not by an apostle, at least in the lifetime of many apostles. It was inevitable that the church in the capital of the world, when it came to be an important body, should exercise a dominant authority over the churches of the neighboring cities. Such was, in fact, the case, though its predominance was not at once recognized. The first and natural center of the church on earth was, of course, Jerusalem, where the Holy Spirit was first given. Hence, Jewish Christian fiction in the second century gives to St. James, the Lord's brother, the title of Bishop of Bishops, and regards him as the center of ecclesiastical unity. But on the destruction of Jerusalem by Hadrian, the central power of Christendom passed, by a kind of natural affinity, to the middle point of the political world, Rome. Henceforth, St. Peter, and not St. James, is the central figure with the Christians of the Hebrew faction. 
It is again in Judaizing fiction that St. Peter, the first fruits of the Lord as the primeval bishops were of the apostles, is represented as possessing supreme authority in the Roman Church and handing on the privileges of his cathedra to his faithful disciple Clement. Yet Dionysius of Corinth, who had the greatest respect for the Roman see, knows nothing of the see of St. Peter, but refers the foundation of the Roman Church to St. Paul and St. Peter in common. Tertullian ranks Rome with Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Ephesus among the apostolic sees, and agrees with the Clementines in regarding St. Peter as first bishop of Rome, and as having ordained Clement as his successor. Yet he treats with the utmost scorn the claim of the Pontifex Maximus to be a bishop of bishops, or, by his own authority, to grant remission of penalties for certain offences. Irenaeus, in an interesting passage, refers to the ancient and glorious Roman see as the acknowledged preserver of the traditions derived from the two great apostles, its founders, and therefore having a natural precedence among the churches. Cyprian, who regards Rome as certainly the see of Peter and the centre of unity in the church, urges that the gift of the Lord to St. Peter was identically the same as that to all the apostles, and if it was given to one in token of its unity, it was given to many in token of its variety. All bishops alike are successors of St. Peter, for one bishop to claim an episcopate over his brother bishops is simple tyranny. The claim of Rome to be Cathedra Petri was acknowledged from the end of the second century, but it is needless to seek the grounds of the Roman primacy in a supposed supremacy of St. Peter and a supposed commission of St. Peter to those who should occupy the Roman see. The causes which really led to the preeminence of the Roman Church and its bishop are sufficiently obvious. All the roads in the world led to Rome, all nations and sects were represented there, and probably those obscure bishops of Rome in the second century had more of the governing instinct than their more literary and contemplative brethren in the East. The majesty of the Eternal City could not fail to add dignity to its bishop. It was not, so far as we can now trace, the greatness of particular bishops which raised the Church of Rome to its preeminence. If there were among them saints and martyrs, there were also some whose name bears no good odor, but all were eager for Roman interests. Callistus was probably a man of doubtful character, but he at least strengthened the position of the episcopate by the declaration that a bishop should in no case be deposed by the presbytery, not even in case of mortal sin. If Marcellinus offered incense to idols, the Roman legend turns even his fall to account, saying that it was only by his own voice that he was condemned, for the first see is judged by no man. In spite of individual failures, the Roman Church, like the Roman nation, steadily pursued its aim of ruling the peoples. It gained its end, so far as the Western churches are concerned, yet not without many struggles. Its claim to settle controversy by an authoritative decision was vehemently rejected in the second and third centuries by the Asiatic and the African churches, and it was not until political causes powerfully cooperated with spiritual that the power of the great Roman patriarchate was consolidated. Within the first three centuries it exercised authority over the suburbicarian provinces in central and southern Italy, and a vague influence over the churches of southern Gaul, to which bishops were sent from Rome. End of chapter 7, part 2